Verse 12 may be, I think, the most succinct, most perfect piece of moral teaching that has ever been conceived. Just look down at it with me, would you, please? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. My family were not church-going as I was growing up, and yet this was one of those gems from the Bible that I was well aware of. It was my dad's choice phrase for getting me to behave. Uh, and I assumed that he was uh, profoundly insightful until I, I became a Christian and read the Bible and found that he'd stolen it all from Jesus. <laughs> Whatever situation you find yourself in, you can always ask this question, can't you? If the roles were reversed here, what would I want the other person to do for me? It's a question that is designed to discern the way in which we would choose to extract maximum advantage from uh, a situation and then asks us to do, it, do that very thing for the other person. And do the thing which is of maximal good to the other. There were lots of versions of this teaching around in the ancient Near East, always, though, stated in the negative. Uh, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. So don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do the things that would be harmful. But Jesus takes us to an entirely different place, doesn't he? Do that thing which is most good for someone. Actively do the thing that will be of most advantage to the other person, even if it is incredibly costly for you. Wow. That's pretty hardcore, I think, isn't it? And perhaps rightly you are sitting there this morning, trying to take in the scope of what Jesus is saying here. Perhaps for your home life. Do what is to the maximal good of your spouse or your housemates or your children. Or for school or for work. And do that thing which is of most advantage to your boss. And to the people you're the boss of. And perhaps you're thinking, that's really rather hard. And you'd be right. Perhaps you're even thinking, that's too hard. If you flick over the page, just at one page to verse 13, we begin there, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13 begins a section where Jesus is trying to drive home a decision. Will you build your life on the rock or on the sandy place? Will you walk the narrow path or the wide path? And we'll come to those in the next couple of weeks. That's Jesus landing his sermon. And so here, we're concluding the main body of the talk. And we're recognising that Jesus' teaching is hard. And that's not a bad place to get to, as Jesus comes to say, so what are you going to do about it? Perhaps we struggle with Jesus' teaching here. And perhaps that shows that our relationship with God is not in the most healthy place. Uh, after all, uh, surely the first reaction to this passage should be, wow, that's brilliant. Kingdom living, that's amazing. Shouldn't that be our response? Just imagine what it would be like, just for this room full of people here, if every one of us was looking out for the advantage of everybody else, not being selfish, not looking out for what we want, but always looking in every relationship, all the time, to what's best for other people. Can you imagine how interdependent we've become, how uh, completely uh, other-focused and other-person-loving, and how all our needs would always be met all the time? 
by other people. Wouldn't it be amazing? Imagine a whole society like that. That is, after all, what the kingdom of God will be like. But of course, most of us don't react like that when we read this passage. Because our focus is in the wrong place. Our focus isn't on uh, how amazing our community would be if we lived like this. Our focus isn't on how amazing God is, because he is like this all the time. Our focus is on, gosh, God is asking me to do an awful lot here. And that indicates that something is amiss in our relationship with God. Perhaps you read verse 12 and you recognise that it is a beautiful way to live, but you know that you can't do it. Not in a million years of trying hard. And if that's what God expects of us, perhaps here, like in so many places in the Sermon on the Mount, you're thinking, I can't do that. Am I really a Christian at all? we begin to think that our relationship with God is, is fragile. It's, it's based on whether I'm acceptable to God. It's based on whether I've done enough. And will God reject me if I fail to jump over that very high bar that Jesus is setting in verse 12? And if that's how we think, then let me say, uh, you haven't understood your God very well. What we need to see this morning is that our good deeds depend on our relationship with God, not the other way around. God doesn't accept us because we're good. He takes people who are not very good at all. And because we have a relationship with him, he makes us better. So what I want us to see this morning is two things. First, we're going to look at verse 12 as a summary of all Jesus' ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus is really saying. And then we're going to go back and look at verses 7 to 11 as it concludes the teaching on relationship with God from the Sermon on the Mount and see how that really is the driver, the engine room, for living out verse 12. Okay, So our first main point then, fulfil the law and the prophets, verse 12. Just look down at the verse again with me, would you? And notice those two little words, so and for. They help us to understand the logic of the verse. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So we're given a command, aren't we? Uh, following on from what's gone before, and we'll work out what that, uh, what that material before is. And then we're given an ultimate reason for the command. I think the reason's pretty straightforward, isn't it? We are to do to others what we would have them do to us because this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, the law here is the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets is most of the history books and the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And, and those two uh, designations, law and prophets, uh, tend to sum up the whole Old Testament. Sometimes you'll get the law and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the wisdom books, but often the Psalms are missed out. But, but it means the whole Old Testament here. So if you want to boil down the whole uh, ethical teaching of the Old Testament into one pithy, memorable phrase, then here it is. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That is what the whole Old Testament is getting at. But of course, why would you want to keep the law and the prophets? It's all very well to say that's how you keep the law and the prophets, but why would you want to? After all, as Christians, we're saved by grace. We don't keep the law and the prophets to get in God's good books, do we? Well, of course we're saved by grace alone. Jesus died on the cross in our place. He lived the life that we cannot live. We're saved by his work, not ours. But the whole Sermon on the Mount has been teaching us, and I hope you've picked this up as we've gone through, that kingdom people are expected to live as kingdom people. 
That coming into the light means living as light people. I'll just flip back to uh, 5 verse 17, would you? Please. And notice the language here. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Do you notice the language there? Uh, these two verses form a bookend. Jesus says, I've come to fulfil the law and the prophets. And then he says, So fulfil the law and the prophets. What comes from 7.13 onwards is Jesus calling for response. What comes before 5.13 is, is the posture of the Christian. And what comes in between these two verses is uh, the body of the sermon. The ethical teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And the point, I think, is pretty clear, isn't it? Five, verse 20, for example, to illustrate, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus expects us to live as kingdom people. The whole sermon on that is driving us to live as radically transformed people. And yet we feel that we don't scrub up as Christians. Uh, maybe we think, God is going to reject me because I'm just not lighty enough. I'm just not uh, obedient enough. Well, just remember where we've come from. Uh, 4 verse 16, right back at the beginning of our series. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, Jesus calls into his kingdom people who are in darkness, that is, uh, spiritually blind and morally corrupt. Uh, We were all, and maybe some of us still are, living in darkness. Uh, Jesus doesn't come for the good people. He doesn't come to gather together the people who are almost like God anyway. He comes to people who are in darkness. And we're told uh, to live as light. Notice where he begins the sermon, 5 verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. 5 verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. The starting point for a Christian, the starting point for becoming a Christian is this. Know that you are spiritually poor. And know that your sin is terribly wrong. And mourn over it. It is both the starting place for becoming a Christian and it is the place that we never leave as Christians. And I guess if you're not sure about that, do ask any Christian in the room. And we'll tell you happily, We never get past this. Jesus knows that we are not perfect, nor does he expect us to be able to be perfect. But he does call us to a transformation, and we've seen that over again, haven't we? 5 verses 13 and 14. He calls us to be salty, lighty people. And that is, Jesus is the light, capital L. He is God come into the world. But coming towards him uh, is, is to come towards at being light people ourselves. Uh, Jesus accepts our failures. He calls people who are failures. He has died for our failures. But he does expect us to go on mourning over our sin. He does expect us to be salty, lighty people. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus sets the bar uh, really high. And of course he expects us to fail to hit it, but he expects us to try. I think that's the point. He really wants his people to be salty, lighty people. And so you get to the golden rule here in 7 verse 12, and he really is summarising most of what he said before. So, for example, 5 verses 21 to 26. uh, Do not murder. Or particularly, don't be angry. Don't be angry in your heart with the people in front of you. Or, or, Or in the terms of 7 verse 12, how would you want other people to feel about you and think about you? Would you want them to be angry with you? 
then don't be angry with them. Or at 7 verses 27 to 30, we're told that we're not even to think lustful thoughts about another person, uh, abusing them to our own self-interests sexually. Or in the terms of 7 verse 12, would you really want someone to think like that about you? Of course not. So don't think about other people that way. And so it goes on, all the way through the sermon. Everything that the scripture says about our relationships with others can be boiled down, summarised and memorised in one phrase. Do to others what you would have them do to you. (coughs) Excuse me. There are literally an infinite number of ways we could apply this. Because there are an infinite number of ways in which we find ourselves in relationships with other people. And this is, after all, Jesus' summary of everything the Bible says about what it is to be a Christian in one sentence. Let me just show you application, though, from two other places in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice at the end of chapter 5, Jesus says, Love your enemies. So who are your enemies? Who are the people who mistreat you? Perhaps a spouse, perhaps a boss or a colleague, a relative of some description, a parent. And really, you want to be angry with them. They've treated you so badly, and yet Jesus says, love them. Because Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. Uh, even if they don't reciprocate. Because what Jesus is teaching here is how it is to be lighty people in a dark world. As we treat people the way we would want to be treated, we can't expect them to treat us back the same way. It's going to be costly. Or notice the next passage, 6 verses 1 to 4, giving to the needy. Where do you see a need? In the church, perhaps? In the wider world, perhaps? It's the homeless person you pass on the way to the office in the morning. I just ask yourself, if I were in their shoes, what would I want that person to do for me? And then do it. And of course, as soon as I say that, we begin to get the twitches again, don't we? Because we say, well, I I just haven't done that. I haven't lived like that. I've fallen so far short of God's standards for me. And of course, some of us might be tempted to give up on Christianity at that point. The bar is so high, and I am so far short of it. Jesus demands so much. He asked me to give all of myself to everybody. So costly. Or perhaps you're looking into Christian things. And you're rightly concerned that being a Christian is a very costly thing. It might be too tough. (coughs) And those are right concerns. It is absolutely right. As we come to the point where Jesus says, now walk in the narrow way, we need to be clear on what Jesus is calling us to do. It's okay to be concerned. It is tough. What Jesus is calling us to do is remarkable. So what if it is a stunningly beautiful way to live? Uh, that we all desire, really, in our heart of hearts. It's too much, it's too hard. But before you give up the idea that Christians really can live like this, uh, we need to see that the power for this doesn't come from within ourselves. It doesn't come from me screwing myself up into a ball and really working hard tomorrow morning to love all the people I come across. We've already seen, right back at the beginning of this series, that uh, we only become salty, lighty people as we draw near to Jesus, the true light. It's as we spend time with Jesus, reflecting on his glory, adoring his beauty, that we begin to be transformed into the same image. That's the paradigm all through the New Testament. 
But in the rest of our passage this morning, I want to give us another leg, as it were, to stand on when it comes to transformation. We are enabled to fulfil the law and the prophets as we pursue the riches of our Father's generosity through prayer. That's verses 7 to 11. I've suggested that verse 12 is a summary verse for everything from 5.17 onwards. But it's also true that it's been placed at the end of this little section here. And we have to ask, why here? Why not, after another bit of teaching, why is this little bit of teaching here right next to verse 12? How are the two parts of our passage related? Uh, Verse 12 summarises the lifestyle of the kingdom, if you like. But it doesn't really touch on the heart of the kingdom. And that's where we get to in these verses. Verse 12 calls us to live radically selfless lives. Jesus asks us to give to other people constantly of ourselves, the way we would want to uh, be treated, even though most of us, our impulse is to be selfish. To put other people first when actually we want to do the opposite. If we're going to have any chance of behaving in this sort of inverted way, we're going to have to grasp that God has behaved like that to us first. (coughs) In verse 7 we're given three commands. Look down. Ask, seek, knock. And they're given three promises that God will answer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If there was any doubt about what this means, slightly cryptic picture, verse 11 gives us the answer, doesn't it? Uh, Ask of your Father in heaven. We are here talking about prayer. It is persistent prayer. The tense of the imperatives here makes it clear that we are to ask and go on asking and go on receiving. Uh, Broadly speaking, I think the three imperatives mean the same thing. It's it's repetition for emphasis. I think Jesus wants to make it really really clear that you should ask. Okay? It is a command. It's not simply a suggestion. Now, of course, there's some nuance here. I I take it that, uh, for example, you might have a a relationship that's close to you, a a family member who's not spoken to you for some time, and you pray for God to open a door there, and miraculously that person begins to uh, encourage you to speak to them. Uh, there are doors that we can't open that God can open. But, but I think I, I wouldn't want us to close down the meaning here. It is a very broad command indeed. It is an invitation and a command to pray. But why should we pray? At verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one, to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. <coughs> Jesus commands us to pray. And then he gives us a stunning promise. Did you notice? Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone. Which I take it means everyone in this room. If you pray, God will give. Do you desire something? Then ask for it, and it will be yours. I think that is the general promise that Jesus is making. I think it is that broad. Of course, your Father in heaven is God, and you are not. So you are asking him to do something that he is able to do that you cannot do. Okay, But it's a remarkable promise, isn't it? Because although you're not God, you can ask the one who is God to give you things, and he promises to do it. What a remarkable access we have to the Father. Of course, some people have therefore prayed, God, please can I have a sports car, or please can I win the lottery, and when they haven't 
had a sports car or won the lottery, people have thought, well, that's obviously Jesus being bogus here, isn't it? The promise means nothing. Well, it is a, <coughs> it is a general promise which requires a little nuancing from within the Sermon on the Mount. So let's uh, have a look and see what the Sermon on the Mount has to teach us. After all, God is our Heavenly Father. He's not a, a celestial vending machine. You don't put the prayer in at the top and press the right buttons and out comes the sports car or whatever it is you might be desiring. Prayer is a relational thing. And the relationship with him which we pray is uh, given some stipulations, some character in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at what the Sermon on the Mount has to say about uh, prayer. After all, notice 6 verse 5. Do not be like the hypocrites, Jesus said, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And he says, God does not answer their prayers. There's a sort of praying that people do, which is for show. Perhaps you stand at the front of church and you pray. Uh, I guess you might do that. Uh, But really, you're not talking to God. You're just talking in front of other people. Well, that's not a prayer that God is going to answer. So there are clearly some sorts of prayer that God doesn't answer. Let's look at the rest of the sermon for a minute and look at the, the nature of the relationship that we're supposed to have. Let's go back again to 4 verse 16. We begin the story in darkness. We begin as people who are spiritually blind, have corrupt desires. And, and it's important to see that we don't lose all of that straight away as Christians. We don't become Christians and suddenly all the darkness in us is gone. It's not as though all our, our sinful desires go away, all our sinful impulses go away. And it's important to realise that even though we, we long to be lighty people, sometimes the darkness hangs around. And sometimes we pray out of that darkness, don't we? We pray for things that would be harmful for us. But God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so if we pray according to the darkness in us, God is not going to honour that. God is not going to answer that prayer, because it's not good for us to receive those things. God is not going to give us what is harmful to us. And so as James puts it in James chapter 4, we don't get what we want because we ask with wrong motives. And we've all done that. Our ambition is to be salty, lighty people. We're to be shaped by the Beatitudes. And so perhaps we ought to be praying, God, I am poor in spirit, please strengthen me. God, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, please make me more righteous. Uh, Lord, I, I long to be a peacemaker, for the peacemakers are your children. Give me the chance to be a peacemaker. We could pray for our church to be a city on a hill, the bright, shining light in Earlsfield. We can make it our ambition at 5 verse 48 to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Or consider the Lord's Prayer. Look at what Jesus commands us to pray. Pray for the hallowing of God's name. Pray for his glory, his kingdom come, his will to be done. Pray for the things that God cares about. Pray for his honour and his kingdom. And of course pray for our daily needs. Pray for uh, for food, for the table. I think we often forget to do that because we're so self-sufficient these days. Pray for what our spiritual needs. Forgive us our debts, lead us away from sin. Pray for those things, because those are the things that Jesus has commanded us to pray for. And we cry out to our Father who is in heaven for the things that we need. And I don't think any of us needs a Ferrari. And even as we're praying for our daily needs, remember 6 verse 31. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows what we need. He tells us to pray for those things, and God promises to provide those things. But notice, we're not to run after them like the people in the world do. We're instead commanded, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do you see? The things we should be concerned about, the things we should be longing for, the things we should be praying for, are related to our relationship with God and the privileges of those relation, that relationship. If I might summarise, our Father in heaven loves to hear from his children and he promises to be fantastically generous to us when we pray according to that new relationship we have with him. If we're consumed with the things of this world, well, we can't expect God to be generous towards us. We're longing for things that he's told us not to set our hearts on. But if we're consumed with the light who's come into the world, that is our Lord Jesus, if we're consumed with the Father and a desire to see his name glorified, his kingdom extended, uh, if our ambitions are to be like him and to serve him, then our God has promised if we pray, he will give. Everyone who asks receives. So pray. Pray for your heart's desire And if your heart's desire is informed by by the gospel, then God will give and give and give. In every generation where the church has seen uh, revival, a radical spread of the gospel, it's always been accompanied, always accompanied by uh, normal people praying hard for God's kingdom to come. Would we see revival here in Ellsville? I hope we would. Then let us pray, every one of us, for the kingdom to come. If we don't see answers to prayer, It is likely for two reasons. It is because we don't pray, or when we pray, we're consumed with this world and not the Father's glory. Do you long to see the work of God in your life? Do you long to see his generosity to you day by day by day? Then pray. Be specific, be radical and ambitious, and pray. Of course, you might then still be saying, well, look, how, how generous can he really be, Ash? Come on. How generous can he really be? And Jesus goes on to illustrate this, I think, in verses 9 to 11, by arguing from the lesser to the greater. That is, from human parents to the parenthood of God, because he is our father, after all. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Notice verse 11. Jesus calls all parents evil. That is, relatively speaking, uh, when God is the marker of perfection, he is perfectly good, then we are all evil to a greater or lesser extent. That is, we're full of faults, we're full of selfishness, and yet even we, who are incredibly selfish people, know that if your child asks you for bread... It would be cruel to give them a stone. I get you think of the, the loaf of bread uh, in, in those days would be a sort of a, like, a, like a large bun. Imagine just a big rock that looks very similar. Sort of a little, little test for your children, you know. They ask for a, a loaf of bread and you give them a big rock and say, go on, I eat that. That's it, their teeth broken, your children crying. It's a, a really cruel thing to do, isn't it? I guess if we did that sort of thing, it wouldn't be long before the social would come knocking and say, Uh, We're taking your children into care. And you have to say, with some justification. 
Or, or the parent who gave a venomous snake to the child who wanted a fish to eat. These are just staples. You know, your child's going to starve if you don't give them bread or fish. It would be unthinking cruelty, wouldn't it? We, we used to own a snake. And my wife owned a snake that I inherited when we got married. It was a joy. And we used to play a little game. People would come round for dinner and we'd get the snake out. And, and, you'd, and you'd see uh, the room divided, usually, between the people who would go and hide behind the sofa and those who'd want to have a cuddle with the snake. Often, uh, more people hid than uh, wanted to cuddle the snake. It would be a cruel thing, wouldn't it? To give a venomous snake to your child. Uh, You'd be putting their life in danger, and every parent knows your, your first task is to protect your children, not put their lives in danger. How is it then that we can think even as evil people who know uh, very well the, the, the truthfulness of Jesus' words, how can we possibly think that God is not more generous than that? How is it that the God who is of infinite perfection would hold, withhold any good thing if we ask him? He is your father. And that is a meaningful reference. He treats you, if you are a Christian, the same way he treats his son, Jesus. He is infinitely wise and knows what's good for you. He's infinitely good and wants what's best for you. And he is infinitely able to do all that we ask. Why would we doubt him? Why would we not uh, pray? I wonder whether we, we stop to look at the cross and see the cost that God was willing to bear to do good to us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans 5. That's right, isn't it? God was not coming to rescue a friend. He was looking at a helpless enemy and said, I will rescue you. Even though you're not asking me to rescue you, I'm going to act to rescue you first. I was reading this morning in my devotions at Titus chapter 3, where Paul talks about the Spirit being given. He says... Uh, the Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. How is it that the God who has uh, given himself at the cross in the form of the Lord Jesus, the God who has poured out the Spirit on us to make us like the Lord Jesus, how can we think that he will not in fact give us everything that is good for us if we ask him? Jesus is here speaking to his disciples He's speaking to those who've come into the light, as many of us have. People who've determined to follow him, whatever the cost. And over and over again, Jesus says, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pray, our Father in heaven. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you are a Christian, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, then he is your father. He is the father of all grace and all generosity who is able to superabound in every way for you. God promises, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, that he will treat you the way he treats Jesus. Infinite affection and love and goodness. He will pour out his blessings on you for all eternity. And the question is not whether that's true, but whether you believe it. Do you believe Jesus? Do you take Jesus at his words? 
And so will you pray. I guess that's the test for us this week. If we believe what Jesus has said here, that God is just waiting to pour out the heavenly store of his blessings on us, that he wants to see our friends come to Christ, if only we'd pray for them, that he wants to see us better at evangelism, he wants to see us better at living godly lives, he wants to see us transformed so that we're able to be generous to others, would we pray for those things? Will we pray in accordance with our physical needs and our spiritual needs? Will we pray according to kingdom priorities? Because if we do, we will see prayers answered every day. And we'll come to church bouncing, won't we? It's another chance to pray. It's another chance to sort stories of God's amazing grace to us this week. A great chance to sort stories about how we've conquered a sin because we've been praying and praying and God has finally given us the power to escape that sin that's been dogging us for years. Joyful because we've had those conversations with our friends and somebody's come to church with us and, oh, how many things, how many blessings are we missing out on because we do not pray? How much more would God be glorified as he answers those prayers for us if only we would pray? Would you see that? Do you long for it just a little bit? then pray that God would grow your heart to long for it more and pray and pray. And as we see God being generous towards us, providing all that we need, answering all our heart's desires, well then I think we will be able to live out verse 12, won't we? See, if we're left to try and do verse 12 by ourselves, pouring out ourselves in generosity to others, knowing that we won't get it back, knowing that actually... In the end, we bleed ourselves dry. We can't do it, can we? But if you know that God is just pouring out his blessings every day on you, that he's got your back, that every need of yours is covered, if you know that in your church family, if you find yourself, uh, you've spent yourself so much that you, you physically haven't got the, the power to cook yourself, somebody will do it for you. Because everybody's looking to do the best thing for you. Well, that's, that's an incredible resource, isn't it? If we're covering each other's backs because Jesus commands us to, and if we're all crying out to God that he would give us everything that we need, then we really can be people who put others first. We can be people who pour ourselves out in generosity in all sorts of ways for others. And that will bring glory to God as we live as salty, lighty people. And we're never going to be able to outgive God. Let me encourage you to pray and pray for God to give. Because the more you see God's generosity in your life and the lives of your brothers and sisters here, the more you will pour yourself out in generosity to others. And that is what Jesus wants from us, that we should be like our Father, who is glorious in his generosity. Let me pray for us as we end. Our Father, you are the God who is generosity itself. You are love and you are mercy and you are good and you do good to your people all the time. Praise you that this word is good for us and we pray that you would conform us to uh, these words, that you would make us prayerful people. Lord, forgive us that we have not prayed as we should. 
and give us prayerful hearts. Give us a longing to see you at work in our church and in Earlsfield and the world as we pour ourselves out in daily prayer for every good thing that you promise to give. Father, we, we long to be in a position to swap story after story of your generosity to us. Please would you show us your glory. Show us your goodness to us and help us to be those who are good to others too. That we might uh, show the world uh, what it is to be transformed by the gospel. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.